Well, take the Bible in front of you, maybe out of the pew, and turn to John chapter 18. We're going to be looking at the last paragraph of chapter 18, and then we're going to go into the first six verses of chapter 19 this morning as we continue verse by verse through John's gospel. We are right on the cusp of the crucifixion. We are right before the cross when Jesus would be hung there and in excruciating pain would die for sinners. In fact, you probably are aware that the term excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. So when you say, man, I was in excruciating pain, make sure you mean that, that it was similar to a crucifixion. Otherwise, it wasn't excruciating pain. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, The Spotless Lamb of God. The Spotless Lamb of God. One thing I've pointed out over the last two years in our trek through John's gospel is over and over again, it's been repeated from the lips of Jesus, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet arrived. And I've pointed it out because Jesus understood full well that he was working according to a divine timetable. He had a sovereign timeline that he was fulfilling And the apex and the culmination of Jesus' life, his work, his ministry was right here, this week. What's happening here? Well, it's the Jewish celebration of Passover, the Jewish celebration of that rescue that God had done for the children of Israel when they were in bondage and captivity in Egypt. You're probably familiar with that, that they were in bondage, in captivity, and God rescued them from that captivity by stretching out, as it were, his strong arm and delivered them from the oppression of Pharaoh. He did that through a series of 10 plagues. The final plague, which God brought upon Egypt, was that the firstborn, the firstborn child of every household would be struck down dead in the middle of the night. The only households to be prevented and protected from that plague were the households who had followed the instruction of the Lord to take a lamb, to sacrifice that lamb, and to take the blood of that lamb and to spread it over the doorpost, over the lintel of their home. In fact, notice how uh, the instruction was given to them in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. The Bible says, Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 5 said, if you'll notice, it's to be without blemish. There was to be no defect. There were to be no sores, no injuries, no diseases. A perfect, pristine lamb, the very best one from the herd. And so again, with the timetable of the Lord, very intentional. The apostles would give evidence to Jesus's spotless nature multiple times throughout the New Testament they do this. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 5. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul says, Jesus is the Passover 
lamb. He has been sacrificed. He's spotless, without blemish, without defect. In Acts chapter 2, Peter would refer to the character of Jesus as being holy. In 1 John chapter 2, John would say that Jesus' character was righteous. In fact, notice what Peter had to say about our great salvation from the Lord. He said this in 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So over and over again, the apostolic witness to the church is that Jesus was pristine. He was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous. He was without blemish or defect. He was the spotless Lamb of God. But interestingly, there's another voice that joins the chorus of the apostles attesting to the purity and the innocence of Jesus. This voice is one you might not expect. It's the voice of the pagan governor over Judea, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, in our passage today, will declare not once, not twice, but three times that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is not guilty. So look for those three times as I read our focal passage. John chapter 18, I'll begin our reading in verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted a, together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Jesus was, even by pagan Pilate's own testimony, guilt-free. He was innocent. He was led to a slaughter like a lamb, spotless, so that all who trust in him can have their sins forgiven. Now, there are some interesting things going on here I want us to consider up front at the beginning here. First of all, Pilate begins by reminding the Jewish people of this custom that they practiced, that they had. What was the custom? That at Passover, once a year, as they celebrated Passover, he would release to them a Jewish criminal who was convicted of capital crimes. He would release to them acquitted, uh, set free from the punishment they deserved. And so he asked them, since he's just proclaimed the innocence of Jesus, I've just declared to you he is guilt-free. Do you want me to release him to you? And he kind of uses this antagonistic title to the Jews, the king of the Jews. Well, they obviously didn't consider him the king of the Jews. Now, their response seems to me to be somewhat predetermined and premeditated. It's almost like it's a, 
a joined response in unison. Not this man, but Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. They're crying out to Pilate. John records that for us. Barabbas is mentioned, interestingly, in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, there are more verses devoted to Barabbas and his release than to Judas and his betrayal among the four gospels. Barabbas. It's an Aramaic name, Bar-Abba. Bar means son of, Abba means father, son of the father. So they're calling for the release of this false son of the father and calling for the crucifixion of the true son of the father. Just an aside here, this should inform us that the democratic process does not always choose the best person. The crowds don't always choose the best option. So they call for Barabbas. John tells us a little bit about him here. He says, now Barabbas was a robber. But it's not just that Barabbas was some kind of petty thief. No, his, his stealing, his thievery was con- connected to a larger conspiracy plot. He was an insurrectionist. He was one who wanted to overthrow the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. In fact, notice how Mark describes him in Mark 14, 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So he wasn't just a thief, wasn't just a robber. He was an insurrectionist, and he was a murderer. This is a hardened criminal. This is a revolutionary who wanted to overthrow Rome. And think about it. This criminal who was trying to cause an insurrection and murdering in the process was guilty of the things the Jewish religious leaders were saying Jesus was guilty of. But Jesus is 100% innocent. They tell Pilate, he's leading a rebellion. He's leading a sedition. He was innocent, whereas Barabbas was completely guilty. What hypocrites these Jewish leaders are. Well, several weeks from here, in fact, uh, Bryce had us read through the portion of the passage where Peter will speak to these very religious leaders. And Peter will remind them in, in 40 days what they've done. Notice Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Peter, speaking to the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, said, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he, Pilate, had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now, something we realize through the lens of Scripture is Jesus' betrayal, Jesus' arrest, Jesus' beating and mocking, Jesus' crucifixion, while, yes, it was accomplished by the acts of sinful men, It was accomplished according to the holy will of God. In fact, notice how Isaiah predicted it some 600 years earlier. He says in Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him, Jesus, to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. We can never lose sight of the fact that though Judas was a betrayer, though Pilate was a coward, though the Jewish leaders were jealous and hypocritical, 
Though the Roman soldiers were sadistic and bloodthirsty, and they are fully culpable for their guilt, at the end of the day, God put his son to death. He has crushed him. Why? It was God's purposes to sacrifice the innocent, spotless lamb of God. And in so doing, God laid on his own son what we deserved. And today, I want to point out particularly from these verses three things that Jesus takes for us. This isn't all that Jesus takes for us, but from this passage, these kind of emerge from the text. Three things that Jesus takes for us, and I'm identifying them with three key words. I want you to see what they are. The first one is this. The word is spikes. He took our curse. Jesus took our curse. Again, John tells us that after the Jews called for the release of Barabbas, Pilate went back into his headquarters and he ordered Jesus to be flogged. Some translations say scourged. The, the Romans had a means of punishment that was a horrific form of physical abuse. They had a tool for this abuse. It would be something like a dowel with leather strips attached to it. And at the end of that leather strips, there would be pieces of sharpened stone or bone or metal. And they would sling this strip across the back of the criminal. There are three, according to history, levels of scourging that the Romans would inflict upon these prisoners. The first level, the least severe, was known as fustigatio, and that would be for basically a petty criminal. It was a good whipping to teach him a lesson. The second level was known as flagellatio. It was a more brutal flogging for more serious crimes and more convicted criminals. And then the final, the verberatio, was the most severe and often proved to be fatal. With this flogging, they would beat the person within an inch of his life. Often they would cause death. This leather strips would come across the back and would also be across the sides, ripping out arteries, blood vessels, sometimes even exposing bone, muscle, and internal organs. Now, as we harmonize the gospel accounts, it seems likely that the flogging John mentions here is not this most severe form. Jesus would endure that, but that would come later. It seems here this is kind of the first level, kind of teaching Jesus a lesson. The other gospels record that it was after he was condemned that he received the severe scourging. This is before he was condemned. And it's likely because of the severe scourging he would again get later why he would be too weak to carry his cross all the way up the hill, why he would die. Often crucifixion could last days. You would be hanging there for days. Jesus died within just a few hours, likely because of the severe blood loss and the brutal beating he endured. So again, it seems this flogging John is referring to here is one that preceded that really fatal flogging. Why? Well, Pilate is still, I think, trying to save Jesus on some level. Okay, let me bring him back inside. Let me give him a beating. Let me prove to the Jews that, yeah, I do see he needs to be corrected. We need to teach him a bit of a lesson. But the, the bloodthirst of the crowd would not be satisfied. Then John tells us in verse 2 something else that the soldiers did. 
And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. On the surface, this might seem like just some random decision a sadistic Roman soldier came up with. Hey, we're mocking him. Why don't we create a mock crown and we'll weave it out of these thorns and put it on his head. But we need to know that Jesus is sovereign over all. God is sovereignly choosing and implementing by his holy will every detail of what's happening to his son. Why? Because there's a spiritual object lesson for us to learn here. Why a crown of thorns? Why a crown of thorns? Thorns represent for us the curse. If it were not for the curse, there would be no thorns. Now, I know some of you Tennessee fans this morning think Tennessee's under a curse. I know you think that. It may be true. But the curse of the garden is infinitely worse than the curse of the swamp. The curse of the garden that God inflicted upon Adam, that God inflicted upon this planet, is infinitely more brutal. And the symbol of the curse is thorns. Thorns. Notice Genesis 3.17. And to Adam he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns represent the curse of the planet. When I do a baby dedication here, I give away three roses to the parents and emblematic of three things that I want to communicate to them. Before I bring those roses in here, guess what I do? In my office, I take the roses and I take those stems and I cut off any of the thorns. Why? Because I don't want a little baby grabbing a thorny rose in front of you on a Sunday morning. That would not be good. The roses that bloomed in the Garden of Eden had no thorns. There were no thistles. There was no curse. What's happened here? After the atomic bombs were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Obviously, those bombs were incredibly devastating. But they forced the surrender of Japan and brought to an end World War II. But months after those bombs were dropped, the death toll rose in Hiroshima and Nagasaki by over 200,000 more people than just what died at the dropping of the bombs. Why did they die months after? One of them were because of injuries sustained from the impact, but most of them because of what? Radiation. Fallout. Friends, when when Adam sinned, when he disobeyed the Lord and ate the fruit, an atomic bomb of disobedience dropped in the garden. And the fallout of that bomb has been infiltrating humanity for millennia. We are living in the after effects of the atomic bomb of sin. Why are there hospitals? Because of sin. Why are there prisons? Because of sin. Why is there evil and wickedness? Because of sin. It's all the fallout of Adam's decision when Adam sinned. And it's not just humanity that experiences the fallout. All of creation is experiencing the fallout of that sin. In fact, notice how Paul put it in Romans 8. 
Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him, that's Adam, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And what's the emblem? What's the symbol of this pain? Thorns. Thorns. When I was three or four years old, Growing up in central Florida, one day my older brothers took me out to the woods and they were looking for these Florida cactuses. We, we called them prickly pears. The sandy soil in Florida, if you go out in the woods, they, they're everywhere. You can find them all over the place. And so my brothers are picking these prickly pears. Curious. What are they doing with those prickly pears? Well, they're peeling back the skin. Go back to that other picture. They're peeling back the skin of those prickly pears and they're cutting up the fresh green meat on the inside and they're eating it. And they're giving me some of the prickly pear to eat. Hmm, that's good. Well, the next day, little four-year-old me decides I want some more prickly pear meat. So I go out into the woods and you can see there's some bigger thorns, but that little fuzz on the outside of those prickly pears, that's actually dozens of little bitty tiny, almost microscopic thorns. So little Troy wanders into the woods he picks a prickly pear, and what does he do? <sighs> of course, I, I didn't cry. <laughs> I ran inside, my, I opened my mouth, and my mom sees all these dozens and dozens of thorns on the roof of my mouth and on my tongue, and she has to take tweezers and one at a time pull these thorns out of my mouth. The thorns they impaled on Jesus' skull were not prickly pear thorns. Likely, they come from the date palm, the date palm has thorns that are four, five, six inches long. If you've ever had a cut on your forehead or on your scalp or maybe nicked yourself shaving, you know how profusely your head bleeds. They impaled Jesus with this crown of thorns in mockery. It's part of the reason why Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Thorns. Why? Because of the curse of sin. The curse of sin. Another part of the curse was that there was separation for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and we all inherit that curse. We all inherit separation from God. But Christ came to take that curse from us, to take that curse for us. That's why the Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. How do they hang Jesus on the tree, on the cross? With spikes with these thorns of steel, emblematic of the curse of sin, and Christ became a curse for us. That's the first word I want us to consider. Spikes. He took our curse. Here's the second word. Scorn. He took our shame. He took our shame. Now, this crown of thorns they placed on Jesus, it wasn't 
to honor him. It was to mock him. This crown of thorns wasn't to um, make him look important. It was to ridicule and to scorn him. How do we know that was the motive? Because of how they continued. Because they followed up the crown of thorns with this robe of mocking. Here's a robe of royalty on your freshly scourged back, Jesus. The mockery and scourge continues in verse 3. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their fists. Picture this in your mind's eye. There's likely a battalion of soldiers here. Dozens and dozens of soldiers. They've beaten Jesus. They've put the crown of thorns on his head. They put a robe on his back. And one by one, they kneel before him and mockingly hail him. Hail, King of the Jews. And each time they get up from their kneeled position, they strike him in the face. Imagine how that would jar the crown of thorns, the intense pain that would reel through his body, the cruel abuse of the completely, according to Pilate, completely innocent Lamb of God. How do you explain such cruelty? How do you explain such evil? Well, one answer is, this is the kind of things that happen when sinners get together. This is just the outworking of human depravity. We've heard of this kind of thing happening when a Fraternity hazing goes too far. When the locker room taunting goes to the extreme. I used to say whenever I was in student ministry, one middle school boy has an IQ of about 125. Two middle school boys together have a combined IQ of 125. Three middle school boys together have a combined IQ of 125. In other words, they get dumber the more of them you get together. This is human depravity. You got these sadistic, evil men. They're living out the, the, the depravity that they bear. One of our members sent me this picture Friday. It's a picture of the back windshield of a car here in Chattanooga. No child is born bad. Isn't that nice? One, either they're not parents, or two, they're really trying to compensate for their very bad child. Every child is born bad, every child is born sinful. David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. So maybe this is an outworking of their evil, their human depravity, their deep-rooted sinfulness. Further, these soldiers are used to inflicting evil on people. They're used to considering Jews as less than human, as dogs of the planet. And think of it. These soldiers are personally facing the majesty of glory the creator of the universe. Perhaps some of these very same soldiers were there in Gethsemane when Jesus said, I am, and they were knocked to the ground. And here they are, mocking him and abusing him. Friends, this shows the wickedness of the entire cursed race. And this is not an exception to the rule. This is the rule. We see it today. Humanity scorns Jesus. Humanity laughs at his gospel and all that he stands for. Why? Why do they? Jesus told us why at the beginning of this gospel account. Notice what Jesus said in John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness 
rather than the light because their works were evil. The scorning and the humiliating of Jesus, it's barbarous. But this is what barbarous mankind does. And as Jesus is enduring this scorn, as he's taking the mockery from those he created, what is he taking? He's taking our shame. He's taking our shame. Many people in the world, and rightly so, not only feel guilt for things they've done wrong, but they feel shame. But what's the difference between guilt and shame? Sometimes we use these terms interchangeably, but they're really different. I would liken guilt to that of a prosecuting attorney. Guilt has to do with a legal standing. You're either guilty or innocent, right or wrong. Shame, I would liken to a shaming granny. Which voice do you hear in your head? A lawyer? Or do you hear granny? What will people think of you? I can't believe you're going out of the house dressed like that. Shaming granny. How could you look them in the face again? Shame on you. You ever experienced shame for your actions? Not just guilt, you know you're guilty, but shame. Here's the good news, friends. Jesus not only took your guilt, he took your shame. Jesus not only took the guilty verdict as the innocent, spotless lamb of God, he took the mocking, he took the abuse, he took the embarrassment, he took the shame that we rightly deserve. Notice how Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, watch this, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus, publicly, in front of the world, took shame. He took your shame, and Christ has taken your shame so that he could give you his honor. Are you honorable? Not really, but he's declared you honorable because he took your shame. Are you worthy? Not really. Christ is worthy, but he's declared you worthy because he's taken your shame. I love the way J.C. Ryle put it. He says this, our Lord was clothed with a robe of shame and contempt that we might be clothed with a spotless garment of righteousness and stand in white robes before the throne of God. The soldiers abused, the soldiers scorned, the, the soldiers mocking, it was finally done. And Pilate then comes and declares his purpose for it all. Look at verse four. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. What did the people expect to see when Jesus came back out? We can only wonder. But how would they have reacted to what they saw? This bloodied, beaten, bruised, embarrassed, mocked Savior. Pilate presented Christ 
the king in a mocking, disgraced way. And what did he say? Behold the man. Here's your king. What does he mean? Behold the man. Well, it's suggested by some, and I happen to agree with the suggestion, that Pilate wanted Jesus to look as pitiful as possible to reveal what a ridiculous idea it is that this guy could ever mount any kind of overthrow of Rome. This guy? Behold the man. What's he going to do? Absolutely nothing. And perhaps he was appealing to that reality, thinking they would drop the charges, they would drop their ideas, but they would not. So Jesus has to step forth as this caricature of a king, and Pilate presents him to the world in that way. Hebrews says, consider him. Consider him, this mocked king. Consider him who bore such grief. Think about it. Ponder it. Contemplate it. Friends, that's why we take this communion meal once a month. These elements are not just for a little tasty snack before we go home. We are to ponder. We are to consider the bloodied and beaten Savior. We're to think about his body that was bruised. We're to think about the blood that was shed. Hebrews says, think about him who endured such hostility, despising the shame. You know, not one of these Jewish people could name a single thing that Christ had done wrong. What had he done over the previous three years? He'd healed the sick. He'd fed the hungry. He'd raised the dead. But instead they say, crucify him. And Jesus stood there, enduring their scorn, and in so doing, he took in our place shame. Spikes, he took our curse. Scorn and ridicule, he took our shame. At least to the third word, substitution. He took our place. Imagine with me, in the dungeon, the prison cell, there at the Fort of Antonia, just some 1,500 feet from where Pilate is bringing Jesus out. There in that cell is Barabbas, the convicted insurrectionist. Now, Barabbas would have been too far away from the goings-on to have heard what Pilate was saying, but no doubt he could hear the unified cried cries of the crowd. So he couldn't hear Pilate say, what should I do with this man? All he could hear is the crowd say, Barabbas! Imagine if that was you in that cell. Huh? What are you talking about me? Who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas! He doesn't hear Pilate, he just hears the crowd. And then Pilate says, well, what should I do with this man? Barabbas didn't hear that. All he hears is, crucify him. Have you ever tried to figure out what's being communicated when you're just listening to one side of a phone conversation? Right? What are they talking about? Are they talking about me? Who are they talking about here? All Barabbas hears is his name cried out in unison, and then crucify him, crucify him. That's it. It's judgment day. 
I know I'm convicted. I'm going to be hung on a cross. And then his heart sinks as he begins to hear the heavy footsteps coming down the hall to his cell. He hears the jingling of keys. They open the cell door. He sees two Roman soldiers. And instead of binding him, they say, you're free to go. He steps out of that dark dungeon into the morning light of Passover. And he has to see what's going on. Here's this one sole solitary figure who's being followed by a crowd. He's beaten, he's bloodied, he's bruised, and he's carrying a cross. Barabbas begins to inquire, who is this? Well, what's his crime? Oh, he's innocent. (laughs) Three times Pilate said, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Why is he bearing this cross? Barabbas, don't you know? That's your cross. And as Barabbas follows the crowd up to Golgotha, as they begin to drive those spikes through Christ's hands and feet, and he hears the ringing of the hammer in his ears, he knows, those are my spikes. And as he lifts the cross up and drops it with a thud in the hole, and the crowd cheers and mocks, and ridicules, that's Barabbas' shame. Barabbas is the only human being who could literally say, Jesus died in my place. But he's not the only one who can say, Jesus died in my place. Because friends, that was my crown. That was my robe of mocking That was my 39 lashes I deserved. Those were my thorns. Those were my spikes. That was my cross. Jesus took my curse, my shame. He died in my place as my substitute. This scene that I just described to you was first imagined, as I understand it, by Donald Gray Barnhouse in his commentary on the gospel, on the book of Romans, Barnhouse writes these words, it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God to be poured upon me. He was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of substitutionary atonement. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. And this makes Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 all the more poignant. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. The great exchange. Jesus bore our sin so that we could bear his righteousness. Jesus died so that we could live. He was bound so that you could be set free. Well, let me say to you, like Barabbas, waiting in that cell for judgment day, all of us are waiting for our name to be called. 
All of us are waiting. Your name will be called to stand before the tribunal of eternity. Your name will be called, and you will be guilty. The question is, on that great day, as the Lord Jesus is there, not in mockery, but in glory, will you be one who has trusted in Christ and his atonement on the cross or has continued to refuse and to reject it? All who have refused him, according to the Bible, will be condemned forever. On that day when your name is called, will you have despised the Lord or will you have loved the Lord? Here is the good news. All of us who have lived in the gloomy dungeon of our own sin, in the filth and stench of our own depravity, we may have freedom by believing in this gospel, by trusting in this Jesus, by placing our faith in the spotless Lamb of God. Behold the man, Jesus Christ. As we prepare for this communion meal, I encourage you, behold the man. Consider him who endured such hostility, who took our curse, who took our shame, who took our place. And it is the beauty and the miraculous nature of this gospel that inspired the hymn writer to compose these words. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How do we respond? How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And that leads to my last thought. As we consider the work of Christ to purchase our salvation, we should marvel and wonder at the Savior's great love. Let's go to him in prayer.